The reading this morning uh, is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verses 3 to 9. It's in page 1217 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow it. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Before Stephen comes to us to speak, uh, we're going to sing a a song that uh, focuses on the solid foundation of our faith and joy, the absolute certainty that God will always keep his promises. It's from the breaking of the dawn. Let's stand to sing this. Thanks very much, guys, uh, for leading us so well this morning. Good morning. Um, It is... Are you out there somewhere? Um, it is lovely to be with you this morning. Um, lots of us are, are off and away in different places, worshiping in different places this morning, um, but it's great that we can still gather here together to, uh, to just worship God. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that over July and August, we are going to be exploring and looking at the fruit of the Spirit. These, these characteristics that should be growing and evident in the lives of those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, who have that that spirit of God dwelling within us and are being made into new creations, made evermore into the people God created us to be. Last week, we were were thinking about love, God's incredible love for us, our loving response to him, and how our love should pour out into the lives of, of everybody that we meet. Well, today we're, we're going to be thinking about the, the, the next in that little series of, of Fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we're going to be thinking about joy. And I wonder what things pop into your head when you hear the word joy mentioned. What things bring you joy? What makes you joyful? Is it being with friends and, and family? Is it being out doing something you love, being in the, in the mountains, just looking at God's creation, uh, being in the water, that's, that's one for me, swimming in the sea, or just sitting with a big cup, a big cup of coffee or tea, a chocolate bar and a good book? Is it finishing work for that long overdue holiday? Is it seeing the grandkids who live a, a, a distance away? Maybe it was seeing England make it into the, the World Cup semi-final for the first time since 1990. Belgium are going to win, though. Um, what, when you think of joy, what images, what comes into your head? 
Maybe that's a very loaded question for you. Perhaps you're struggling this morning, this last while. Maybe you would love to be sitting here today joyful, but grief, depression, anxiety, the realities of living in this this fallen world that we live in have robbed you of all sense of joy. You see, a lot of the time when, when we think about what makes us joyful, we're, we're really thinking about what makes us happy, aren't we? And, and that's okay. When we're happy, we're, we're pretty much always joyful as well. But the Bible tells us that we can be joyful even when we're not happy. In fact, we can rejoice even when we are in the depths of despair. We see that in the Psalms, don't we? Especially in some of those Psalms of of David, where he's in a pretty dark place, and yet he rejoices. We see it in the life of Jesus. In the the Sermon on the Mount, he tells people to, to rejoice when they are persecuted or falsely accused. We see it in the letters of Paul, especially in the letter to the Philippians, a letter he writes, he's in prison, he's awaiting possible execution, he's writing to a church that he loves, who are starting to also face persecution and are starting to drift away from the gospel. And yet throughout the letter, Paul continuously calls the people to rejoice. So there's something special about this thing we call joy. It seems there's a lot more to it than we normally maybe give it credit for. And I think our lives, our faith, and our witness will get a boost from taking a wee bit of a deeper look at this thing we call joy. Now, in saying all that, when it came time to pick a, a Bible passage for Billy to do, uh, to do the reading today, I really struggled. Because there's, there's no big passage in the Bible specifically on joy. Instead, joy appears everywhere throughout the Bible. It's one of those words that is just woven through the pages of Scripture. So I chose that, that great little section from First Peter, which I think shows us a couple of important things about joy, and we're, we're going to take a quick look at those in a couple of minutes. But to really get a grasp of this thing called joy, we need to take a step back. We need to get a big picture view of, and see the importance of it throughout the Bible. And to do that, I'm going to show you a little video. Uh, it's a video from a group, a group called The Bible Project. Some of you will be aware of them. Their, their videos are amazing. Um, they have one for every book of the Bible. It just opens up each book of the Bible for us. And they also have ones on sort of special concepts and special words. And lucky for you, they have one on the word joy. Uh, and they open the whole thing up much better than I ever could. So we're going to watch that now. Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. 
Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says, a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So joy is a big deal in the Bible. It appears all over Scripture. From beginning to end, we are called to be joyful. In fact, we are commanded time and time again to rejoice or have joy. 
Uh, we see an example of that in, in Deuteronomy 16, um, a book that has been very close to our, our hearts here in Kirkpatrick this year. Uh, and in verse 11 of chapter 16, it says, um, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner or the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So it's talking about the practice of the people during, during feasts. And it's saying that everybody must rejoice. Everybody will rejoice. The whole family, those without family, the outcasts, the downtrodden, everyone will rejoice. And it's repeated again in verse 14 for emphasis. And we see the same command to be joyful right throughout the Old Testament and right into the New Testament. As we've mentioned, Philippians, a book written to a church facing uncertainty, difficulty, and seemingly losing their focus on Christ. And they are commanded in Philippians 4.4 to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. The Bible tells us time and time again that we are meant to have joy. And I've checked every page, and there doesn't seem to be any exception, even for Presbyterians. You knew that joke was coming when we were talking about joy, didn't we? Joy is, is commanded from all God's people. It's just not an option for disciples of Jesus. So how does that work? Is this just some, some cosmic version of that friend who, who comes to you in a difficult time when you're struggling and makes everything worse by telling you that you just need to cheer up? You just need to try harder to be happy. Just you know, have, a, have a positive mental attitude about it and it'll be fine. Is that, what God, is that what's happening here? Is God telling us to just, you know, wise up, guys, get over it? Just have, just have some joy? Absolutely not. God never tells us to try harder or be better because even our very best is so far from his holy perfection, it isn't even on the same scale. So the question we need to ask so where does this joy that we're commanded to have come from? You see, as we've already said, happiness is, is, a, is an emotional response to something good. It comes and it goes. It's by its very nature fleeting. But the Bible says something very different about joy. We're told that joy comes not from our feelings or our circumstances, or by our, our good works or positive attitude. Joy comes from the Lord. In First Chronicles 16, a psalm of David, um, which we used part of in, in last week's call to worship, in, in verse 27 of that, that great psalm of praise, as the, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem, as God is coming to be with his people, David says this, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Joy is part of the very character of our God. Joy is where God is. Another psalm of, of David, Psalm 16, backs this up. Um, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Where you are God, that's where the real joy is. 
And then we also have to keep in mind, why are we thinking about joy this morning? It's because we're thinking about the, the fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics we should have in our lives, because God, through his Spirit, has made a home in the hearts of those of us who have put our faith in Christ. God's Spirit dwells in us. And the result of that is that this fruit of God's character should be growing in our lives. Where God is, that's where joy should be. And because it's given to us by God, then no circumstance in our lives should be able to totally rob us of that joy. And yet, the reason God's word so often reminds us, commands us even, to be joyful is because we're so quick to forget where our joy comes from. And that fruit of joy that should be springing up into a mighty tree in our lives, helping us to stay rooted in Christ no matter what the circumstance, it can so often be little more than a tiny seed almost invisible to us and others around us. So how do we grow and nurture this fruit in our lives so that when the storms do come, we have a joy that is rooted deep and helps us to show the world the difference that the Spirit of God makes in our lives? That others might see that, that quiet joy in the midst of anything and everything that happens and say, wow, what is it they've got? Because whatever it is, I want some of that. This is where we, we turn very briefly to that little passage in First Peter. And I'm not going to go into any massive depth uh, about it here at all, but I just want to draw out a couple of quick points about what this passage might be teaching us about how we cultivate, how we grow this joy in our lives. And it might be handy if you have that open in front of you. It's page 1217 um, in the Pew Bible. But very simply, I think these verses point to two things. We rejoice because of our faith in the finished work of Christ, and we rejoice because of our future in the finished work of Christ. So joy because of our faith and our future. If you look at verse 6, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice. In all what? Well, we see the cause for that joy in verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is, is writing to a group of churches who are facing being dispersed because of persecution. They're facing differing levels of, of persecution and suffering and hardship. And what is it that gives these people hope and joy? Well, first and foremost, it's a constant focus on their faith. What Christ 
has done for them and what that means for them. We see this, this great summary of the gospel here that Peter lays out for us. The God who shows mercy. He grants new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. But not only that, how, how amazing that is, but not only that, this passage also talks about our future. The promise of, of eternal, perfect existence with God, an inheritance that can never perish, perish, spoil, or fade. And until then, we are shielded, kept by the power of God. He is with us. He is in control. He is in us. And even, even through the trials that Peter describes through the rest of verse 6. And in fact, Peter goes even further than that in the rest of the passage that we read. He says that the trials and the troubles of this world, if you enter them with faith, can actually make your joy grow rather than fade. Because you're going to become more reliant on the God who, the God who lowered himself to be a man. The God who went through the trials and difficulties that we face and is now living in us, shaping us by his spirit. Peter says if we, if we keep our focus on our faith in Christ and our indescribable future through all life throws at us, our joy will become so great in our lives that it will be, he describes it as inexpressible and glorious. What a life that would be. What a life that would be to, to people around us. What would that even look like to the world around us? A world who so desperately need to know the joy of Christ's saving power. And I, I think that the placement of this passage is, is also important. Why is this right at the start of the letter? And why so often in those letters to people facing persecution, all of Paul's letters, they open with this reminder of who Jesus is, of what he has done for them? Well, in this case, it's because Peter wants these Christians right from the beginning to remember the reason for their joy, to get their focus right so they can see clearly everything else that he has to say to them. And maybe there's something there for us as well. We live in perhaps the, the busiest or at least the most cluttered age the world has probably ever known. We don't rest enough. We don't take enough time to just be. When we wake each morning, we're often thrust straight back in to the busyness of this world. Um, George Muller who was a, an evangelist and an orphanage director in Bristol in the 1800s. You can't come to a Kirkpatrick service without hearing from a German in some aspect. Um, but he's famous for his incredible faith and his amazingly effective ministry. He cared for over 10,000 orphans over the course of his life. And what Muller said was that joy was his first priority every day. This is what he said about it. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul joyful in the Lord. 
The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how much I might get my soul into a joyful state and how the inner life might be nourished. Muller knew that the the Christian life, even working hard for Jesus, caring for, for thousands of orphans, would be cold and empty, would just be a duty if he had lost the warmth of his joy in Christ. This joy, it keeps us safe from serving out of, out of a sense of religious duty or from losing our, our hope and our zeal for God. Refocusing on our, our faith and our future each day, praising God for what he has done for us and promised to us is a great way of growing and maintaining that fruit of joy in our lives. So how are you getting on with this command to be joyful in the Lord? Were you joyful and, and happy as you, as you came in to worship today? Are you joyful even in the midst of storms right now? Remembering that, that the joy that we have can be an, incredible, an incredibly powerful witness to the people we walk through adversity with. Remember, you're struggling. You're struggling to even find that little seed of joy in your life. Well, maybe today you can spend a bit of time just reflecting, remembering, refocusing on all that Christ has done for you, all the promises he has made to you, and to maybe read some of those passages where people facing horrendous circumstances can yet somehow be joyful in the Lord. Like those verses at the end of of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. In the absolute worst of circumstances for, for an agricultural community, like the one Habakkuk was ministering to, Habakkuk could still say, I will rejoice in my Savior because the joy of the Lord gave him strength. May the Spirit of God grow that fruit of joy into your life and mine this week and evermore as we praise him and remember all the things that he has done for us and all the promises he has given to us. And may that joy of the Lord overflow from us into the lives of everybody we meet.